This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. This week's podcast will be about the Donner Party. The history of what was going on in the U.S. at that time plays a very important role in this story. So let's start with the history during that time. During the 1840s, much of the world was fighting with each other. The first of two opium wars was coming to an end in China against Great Britain. In southeastern Asia, the Siamese-Vietnamese War in Cambodia was raging. In Afghanistan, the first Anglo-Afghan War started, initiated by the British who were attempting to impose the, quote, puppet regime in Afghanistan. Don't worry, though. The Ottoman Empire was doing fine, for those of you who have listened to my podcasts about Elizabeth Bathory and Vlad the Impaler. The Ottomans were doing great. There was a war in India and Sri Lanka. In Romania, there was the Wallachian Revolution of 1848, a wave of revolutions in Europe. Africa was very busy abolishing slavery where it could. Canada was hanging in there as usual, and the U.S. was very busy indeed, creating its first postage stamp. States were being formed, such as Texas and Florida. There were anti-slavery conventions in Massachusetts, and then, not long after, was the gold rush. In California, gold was found and seemed to be in abundance. Because of its high value, people uprooted their families to move there with the high hopes of striking it rich. So this is the atmosphere around our group of people. Now, George Donner was born in 1784 near Salem, North Carolina. He was of German descent and the first son to his parents, though being the third child out of seven. He was, of course, raised on a farm and got married to his first wife, 19-year-old Susanna, when he was 25 years old himself. He and his wife moved to Kentucky for a bit before moving on to Illinois. Together, they had three children. It appears the first two might have been fraternal twins, a boy and a girl born in the same year, then a daughter three years later. Though I couldn't seem to find out what the cause was during my research, Susanna died in 1826 at just 35 years old. Her and George's youngest daughter was only 11 years old. George went on to marry a woman named Mary three years later in 1829. At this point, George was 45 years old. Mary was 29. Together, they had two daughters. Then Mary died in 1837 when her daughters were only five and three years old. 
George was now a single father to two small children, his first three already being in their early 20s at this point. It appears that all three stayed in Illinois, and they're all buried there. Two years later, 55-year-old George married 38-year-old Tamsin, and they had three daughters together. Life was pretty quiet on the farm, and I found nothing to indicate that it was otherwise. Now, during this time, there was this sort of cultural belief of what they called manifest destiny, where American settlers truly believed that they were destined to continue to expand across North America. These people felt that they had special virtues and wanted to redeem the U.S. and make the West in the image of the agrarianism, which is the belief that the rural and the agricultural lifestyle was far superior to the more urban city life. Historian Frederick Merck says this concept was born out of, quote, a sense of mission to redeem the old world by high example, generated by the potentialities of the new earth for building a new heaven, unquote. But many believed this was the justification for the Native American genocide. Side note. Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant were against this. But backtracking a little, it is also kind of important to talk about Lilburn Boggs. He was born in 1796 when George Donner was already 12 years old. Lilburn was born in Lexington, Kentucky, and he served 18 months with Kentucky troops during the War of 1812. Four years later, he moved to Missouri, which was then part of the Louisiana Territory. He married his first wife, Julia, in 1817. He was 21, she was 16. They had two sons together, but Julia died giving childbirth to their second son. Three years later, Lilburn married Panthea Boone the granddaughter of Daniel Boone and proceeded to have a further seven children, five sons and two daughters. So with nine children total, Lilburn and Panthea settled into life in Missouri. He went into politics, serving as a senator, lieutenant governor, and finally the governor of the state in 1836. He was now 40 years old. Two years later, there came to be the Missouri-Mormon War, or the 1838 Mormon War, which was a conflict between people practicing the Mormon religion and the other Christian denominations in that area of Missouri. The founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, had by now migrated there from New York and had settled in an area very near where Kansas City is today, or just a little southwest of Kansas City. Smith had told his people that he had received a revelation that the second coming of Christ was imminent and that the, quote, city of Zion, unquote, would be in that area. He told his followers that they were destined to inherit the land already held by the locals. Joseph Smith said, quote, 
if ye are faithful, ye shall assemble yourselves together to rejoice upon the land of Missouri, which is the land of your inheritance, which is now the land of your enemies. Unquote. So you can see why this would have been a problem, right? The locals didn't agree with the Mormon beliefs and things got very violent quickly. Governor Boggs issued Missouri Executive Order 44 that the Latter-day Saints refer to as the, quote, extermination order, which called for the Mormons to be kicked out of the state. Lil Burns said because of their, quote, open and avowed defiance of the laws and of having made war upon the people of this state. The Mormons must be treated as enemies and must be exterminated or driven from the state if necessary for the public peace. Their outrages are beyond all description. Unquote. As you can imagine, Joseph Smith was not happy about this. So in 1842, he ordered the assassination of Lilburn Boggs. The unknown assailant shot Lilburn through his own window while he was reading the newspaper. Large buckshot hit him in four places. Two were lodged in his skull, another in his neck, and a fourth one quite literally went into his mouth and he swallowed it. His injuries were grave, but he survived. It was a miracle that he did. So in 1846, four years after his attempted murder, Lilburn decided he no longer wanted to be in politics and, in fact, wanted to immigrate to California. And the people that would decide to travel with him all believed it was mostly out of fear for the Mormons. He became the captain of this expedition, which came to be known as the Boggs Company. Now, I gave the history lesson about Lilburn Boggs because he was gearing up to leave Missouri, along with several other people in their covered wagons and belongings. Charles Donner himself had decided California, or what was then still kind of considered the Oregon Territory, was where he wanted to be as well. The now 62-year-old Charles his 45-year-old wife, Tamsin, and five of their daughters, 14-year-old Elitha, 12-year-old Leanna, 6-year-old Francis, 5-year-old Georgia, and 3-year-old Eliza, packed up and began their journey from near Springfield, Illinois to western Missouri. George's brother Jacob and his wife Elizabeth and their seven children decided to go as well. They joined up with a man named James Reed, who had served with Abraham Lincoln in the Black Hawk War and had organized the traveling group himself. James Reed was bringing his wife, whom he thought the California air could help her because she was sick with headaches a lot. He also brought their four children along with his wife's mother, who was very sick with tuberculosis. Once Donner and the rest of the group made it to western Missouri, the Independence area, which took them nearly a month, a total of almost 500 wagons set off west. This, of course, is the Boggs Company. 
A total of nine wagons in the back of the line were made up of the Donner and Reed families as well as their hired hands and so on. They began their journey on May 12th. 1846, leaving Independence, Missouri, and going along the Santa Fe Trail. The trip was supposed to take four months, and they intended on landing in San Francisco. They traveled through Kansas, but had to stop for a bit due to the heavy spring rains making the river swell. While waiting for the water to recede a bit, James Reed's mother-in-law finally succumbed to her tuberculosis and died. They buried her under an oak tree along the riverbank. But once they were able to travel again, they headed up into Nebraska and followed the Platte River. Now keep in mind, these people had never been out this way and the prairie lands were something to behold. They saw wild buffalo and several different wild animals that they had only heard about. Some of the travelers kept journals. They, they really thoroughly journaled, which is how we have a lot of the details that we do. Charles Donner's wife, Tamsin, wrote quite a bit, as did James Reed, and they wrote about how the trip was going pretty well and so far the hardest part was trying to cross the rivers or creeks and keeping wagon wheels repaired and so on. They passed a few landmarks such as Chimney Rock which is an odd rock formation in western Nebraska. The travelers had heard of them though expecting to see them along the trail so it was a relief you know to kind of see these markers as they go. They knew at least that they were going in the right direction. They finally made it into what is today Wyoming and onto Fort Laramie, and they encountered some Sioux Indians. It was said to have been a positive experience, and they even did some bartering. This is also where, on July 12th, they got their first warning about the Hastings Cutoff from another man who had traveled there before. This guy warned James Reed specifically to stay on the regular wagon trail full stop. This guy told James Reed, he told him under no circumstances should they ever veer off the regular trail. So what did James Reed decide to do? Well, he decided to leave the established trail and take the supposedly shorter route to California laid out to him by the shady trail guide named Lansford Hastings. Hastings cut off, Lansford Hastings. Do you see the connection? Now, George Donner's wife, Tamsin, was not thrilled with this news and wrote about how much she didn't particularly like Lansford. Also, Hastings was not at Fort Bridger at the time when they'd made it to Fort Bridger. He had led an earlier wagon train along his new route. He had just left word for the Reed and Donner party to follow, you know, promising that he would mark the trail for them. On July 20th, the majority of the travelers, including Lilburn Boggs, set off on the established trail as planned because they were smart. The Reed and Donner parties with their 20 wagons headed for Weber Canyon, which was where Lansford Hastings stated he had found a much easier passage through the Wasatch Mountains. But just within a few days, they realized this route was much more difficult to pull the wagons through than they had been told. 
Hastings had left markers along the trail, though, as he had promised. But this trail was more treacherous than the established one. And then a bit further down the trail, they found a note on a forked stick from Hastings, telling them that the route ahead was actually a bit worse than he had thought it would be. So he said to stay put, make camp, rest, and he would come to them soon and show them a better way. Of course, Reed and Donner and their entourage were already skeptical. They thought about turning around and going back to the established route, but that would mean wasting several days. So with James Reed's urging, they decided to wait. They waited eight days and still nothing from the Hastings. So they sent someone ahead of him and they did, coming back with the new instructions to follow yet another trail. So they packed up and they headed out. Only this trail was much worse. They had to literally cut down trees and cut out a brand new road. The ground was covered in rocks and boulders. I mean, it was ridiculous. But they finally made it through the mountain range and came to the Great Salt Lake. It was now getting into the beginning of September. At this point, the men began to argue amongst themselves, mostly about James Reed and his leadership decisions. The less fortunate families were beginning to run out of food. A party member succumbed to tuberculosis, but they found another note from Hastings. It stated they had two days of travel ahead of them where the trail would be difficult and there would be no access to water, but just two days. So they again stopped, they rested, making sure their livestock, horses, and oxen were all well rested and fed to prepare for the next part of the trip. Crossing the Great Salt Lake proved grueling. The days were unbearably hot, well over a hundred, and the nights were freezing. What moisture lay beneath the salt crust made the ground into this mushy, sticky mess that the animals had a hard time walking in and the wagon wheels would get stuck in. Three days into this leg of the trip, they were out of water. Some of the oxen were so desperate for water that they literally broke free of the wagons and took off running. But six days, not the two days that Hastings promised, six days after, they got through to the other side. At this point, no one felt the Hastings Pass route was going to turn out okay. They sent two men ahead to see what they were looking at, you know, as they continued. The group then rested by a spring, gathered supplies, and repaired what they could. When the two men came back, they said there was another 40 miles of desert ahead. And they continued on. But then the land seemed to give way and the traveling got a bit easier for a while. Then it was time to cross through another mountain range, the Ruby Mountains. So far, Hastings' quote, shortcut had delayed their trip by at least a month. They followed the Humboldt River, where they ran into some Native Americans who seemed friendly at first, but wound up shooting some of their oxen and horses. It was now the middle of October. 
things were not looking good. So the Donner family, the Reed family, and a couple of others decided to split off from the larger group, thinking that it would make better time. There was already fighting breaking out within the larger group. James Reed was actually assaulted by another man. And yet another man suggested that they hang Reed. I mean, you can understand why it was his idea to break from the big group, the Boggs Company. Grass was becoming scarce, and the animals were getting dangerously weak. So to try to help the animals, everyone was expected to walk. Food was running out. The local Indians were continuing to kill off their cattle and even a couple of people in the group. They were forced to leave wagons behind repeatedly. They came upon the Truckee River, but barely gave themselves time to rest. They replenished their stored water supply, let the cattle that they had left fill up on grass and water, then set out to cross the Sierra Nevada in hopes that they could do so before the snow began to fall. By this point, two men coming east came across the Donner Party and saw that they were all half-starved, very road-weary. One man stated, quote, To the bedraggled, half-starved members of the Donner Party, it must have seemed that the worst of their problems had passed. They had already endured more than many immigrants ever did, unquote. It was at this point that the weather was beginning to get truly cold. What was left of the few groups of families were completely exhausted. James Reed, having been banished, rode ahead and made it to California. The Donner Party got into California and made it as far as what is now called Donner Pass. It was a 7,088-foot high pass above the river, and it became completely blocked with snow. They made it as far as Truckee Lake, now known as Donner Lake, and decided to make camp near a log cabin that had been built there a couple of years earlier by other pioneers. Guys, they were now forced to set up to winter at that lake. There were a couple other dirt floor cabins and so on, and they took up residency in those. The cabins were very rough, and the roofs leaked terribly. There were no windows or doors, just a large opening at the front that they did their best to cover with ox hides. The families were, of course, spread out. Tensions were high. The Donner Party had to construct tents that would hold 21 people. And the snow kept coming. On November 4th, it snowed for a continuous eight days. Again, they had very little food, and the remaining oxen were starting to die. So they would butcher them for the meat and store them in the frozen snow. The men would go hunt, but were often unsuccessful. The families were not familiar with how to catch the trout in the lake, which wasn't froze over just quite yet. Sometimes a couple of men would get brave and say they were going to travel on ahead to get supplies, but the snow was so deep they had to turn back around. Life around the lake was quickly becoming miserable. Food was running out. 
They boiled the bones of the animals repeatedly to try to get any little bit of possible nutrition out of them. They boiled skins and drank the horrific tasting broth. People were forced to stay inside the dirty tents and the dirty cabins for days at a time, which were already overcrowded. At this point, about two-thirds of their entire entourage were children. As people began to further weaken, they would be lying down most of the time. George Donner had injured his hand and it became infected. Jacob Donner, George's brother, died, as did another three men. December came and went. In January, they were eating the oxide that had served to help cover the leaky roofs or doors. The children were starving. Some made the hasty decision to leave. Some of their remains would be found later. Others who had left were absolutely starving, and one man suggested someone volunteer to die so that the others could eat. They proposed a duel, contemplating a lottery of sorts. They pushed on, and as they did, two men died. Another went mad, stripped completely naked, and ran off into the woods, and he died. And the cannibalism thus began. The people of the small party that had left the Donner Party began stripping flesh to get to the muscle and organs of the bodies of the four dead men. They dried them and stored them and attempted to continue on their path. They became delirious as more men died. They carved meat out of those corpses to eat so that they could continue on. One woman whose husband died stayed with him, hoping she would die with her husband. The others simply moved around her and butchered her husband in front of her for food. But, miraculously, this little group pushed on and ran into a Native American group who fed them and they eventually made it to a ranch on the edge of Sacramento Valley. A rescue party was quickly put together and found a few more survivors who had left the group on January 17th. It had taken them 33 days from Truckee or Donner Lake. Now, James Reed, remember he had been banished. He had made it to civilization in California and was becoming scared for the families that he had left behind. He begged a colonel at the fort that he had been resting in to get a group together to go back through that pass and help the Donner families as well as the others, including his own. A party of 30 horses and about a dozen men was put together carrying food and supplies. They expected to find the Donner party on the western side of the mountain. They did not find them there. They had to turn and try a different way. The people in the Donner family were beginning to eat the dogs, mice, and even the leather that they carried. And then there was nothing. People would just lie around, unable to move. Two infants then died. And as the days go on, the others slowly began to die from starvation. 
Then, miraculously, the rescue party that Reed had begged for found the remaining members of the Donner Party. It was early February. It is said that one of the wives popped her head out of a hole in the snow, the cabins long being buried, and said, quote, Are you men from California or do you come from heaven? Unquote. The emaciated people were slowly fed. The rescuers made note that many of them were, quote, emotionally unstable, unquote, and the rotting smell around the area was overwhelming. People were rescued and taken out of the area a small group at a time. George Donner's arm was so gangrenous that he couldn't move. The rescuers, taking some survivors back, were scared that the children simply would not survive the trip. Margaret Reed was among them, and when they finally made it through the mountains, she saw her husband waiting for her and sank into the snow beside herself. With this rescued group was three of George Donner's children and three of James Reed's children. The second round of rescue arrived at the camp the beginning of March. Many were again mentally unstable and one woman had gone nearly completely blind from malnutrition. The children were listless and dirty. They were told by the party that they had already been considering eating one of the dead bodies, but that body was found completely mutilated. They also found another person carrying around a detached human leg. They found an area where another completely dismembered body was being stored. Elizabeth Donner, Jacob's wife, had refused to eat, but she had been feeding her children their own father's organs. An additional three bodies had been consumed as well. George Donner himself was gravely ill, the infection having made it up into his shoulder. The second rescue took everyone but a few remaining people at the lake. This rescue saw the survival of another young Donner child and, unfortunately, the death of another. Two more Reed children were also rescued. Tamsin said she would stay with her very ill husband, George, and also kept with three of their daughters. A third rescue effort was made and arrived on March 14th, but there still had been more deaths. Survivors had eaten the remains of some of the children. But George was still alive, and again, Tamsin elected to stay with her husband, though she was told that there was most likely not going to be another rescue party sent. The remaining three Donner children were taken out and rescued. On April 10th, there was a last-ditch effort to rescue any remaining survivors at that lake. When they arrived, they found George's dead body. He had finally succumbed to the infection that had ravaged his arm and his body. They found another man who said Tamsin had died, but they also found a pot full of human flesh, along with a lot of George's belongings. This man was the last survivor rescued. 
In total, 87 people entered the Wasatch Mountains on the suggestion from Hastings. 48 of those survived. The Reed family and one other mostly survived with parents. The children of George and Tamsin Donner, as well as the children of Jacob Donner, were all orphaned. And believe it or not, women were scarce in the West, and apparently a lot of the widows remarried quickly. The Reed family settled in San Jose, and they took two of the Donner children in as their own. The other Donner children were taken in by an older couple. The story, of course, spread far and wide quickly, so the survivors were subjects of morbid curiosity. People were both fascinated and completely disgusted at the acts of cannibalism. Survivors had written about their ordeal and survival. The last survivor of the Donner Party was only one year old when it happened. She died in 1935. The cabins became a tourist attraction nearly immediately. In June 1918, a large monument dedicated to the Donner Party was placed where one of the cabins once stood. In 1963, the Murphy Cabin and Donner Monument were established as National Historic Landmarks. The places where the cabins once stood can be seen with these plaques on them, and one plaque is on one of the old rock fireplaces. Thanks for listening.